intellectual intercourse with smart moms. Okay, we're recording. Um, I'm here with Atek, my sister Lucy. I'm Lily. I'm here in Western Mass, and we're going to talk about disabilities and societal construction of disabilities and fatness and thinness and also we have kids and they will be in and out of here um where no bye Bye. um (laughs) they didn't close the door that's fine um a tech do you wanna hey y'all i'm lucy uh resident fat relative to uh, talk shit about fatness on a podcast. <laughs> hey. So here we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so I shared with my sister these two texts from one of my classes. Um, this course that I'm taking is called Revolting Bodies. Shout out to Professor Majida and the amazing work that she's doing in this class. Um, creating a really important container for us to learn these really important topics uh, which feel like kind of everyday common things for a lot of people totally (laughs) but we're taught that it's not yeah um so yeah the first text that we read my sister and i was uh considering fat shame by Amy Farrow, Stigma and the Fat Body in American Culture. What did you think about that? Um, you know, no hate to Miss Farrell or whatever, but it felt pretty like, yeah, this is my everyday life. Mm. Good job. This is not... Mm. Um, you know, it's like making a, a textbook out, out of a children's book. This isn't, Mm. this is just reality. Right. You don't need to intellectualize it all that much. Right. And, um, how lucky for those people who get to learn about it from a text. Oof. (laughs) Yo. (laughs) Yeah. The, like, the privilege of being an institution learning about life. And how sort of off-putting it is when... When you see it written from an unbiased perspective, see these things about fatness and disability written down on paper from someone who doesn't experience those things. And it seems so, I don't know, drastic, which I guess it is, Mm. but it's also like, I don't know, here's a, yeah, it's a weird magnifying glass to look at. Totally. I'm not sure if um, this author is fat or not. My bad, I should have... I'm also like, oh no, points deducted from me in class. <laughs> for, no. But, um... We do have the technology. Yeah, I do think that it's, like, it's it's uh, important to note that there are scholars who are writing about experiences that they don't embody. Um, and a lot of people who who are not considered fat they they have a privilege of learning or not. They get to choose whether they learn or not, depending on if they have 
um, people in their life. And even smaller fats, you know, we do live in a society where some people who are, you know, there's a scale, right? There's a scale of fatness. And so I exist as a smaller fat who, you know, it might be hard for me to find clothes at the store or, um, use your tiny bathroom. (laughs) My bathroom's so tiny. (laughs) But... I definitely don't experience the same sort of societal stigma as, you know, a super fat black woman or, you know, someone who is, yeah, much more stigmatized. Right. It's totally a sliding scale. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, it's, like, society is absolutely not nuanced. It's totally binary. But, like, let's talk about my tiny bathroom for a second as, like, the quintessential... Situation and uh, architecture. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the toilet is literally like four inches from the tub and four inches from the wall. Mm-hmm. The tub is very small. My bathroom is probably like five foot wide, maybe in like one area, but that in that the actual area that you can stand in is probably like a three foot by three foot space. And you turn in a circle and you've got the sink, the toilet, and the tub. And, yeah. And, I mean, even as a smaller fat person, you know, I can sit on the toilet, but wiping is a whole situation. Right. But if I were, you know, any bigger than I am right now, yeah. I don't know that I'd be able to use your bathroom. Right. And that's just, like, a regular old apartment for rent in the city. Right. That... You know, that's an opportunity where if a fat person was looking for an apartment, Mm -hmm. they could not live there. Right. That is not accessible. Yeah. And I will admit, I didn't even think about that when I first saw that apartment. And I didn't either. It wasn't until I sat down in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which, that's my privilege, too. Right. Where it's not something that comes directly to my mind. Right. I think that, like, so personal history my mother birth mother um is was anorexic I'm not sure that that really went away for her um and I was raised um with like a lot of uh mental abuse around being skinny right um and really intense relationship to the gyms. I personally cannot go into the gym. I might set it on fire. Yikes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we're running, and we're running, and we're running to nowhere. Was that from Pets too? Shout out. We have kids. Shout out to the kids. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yeah, so my... And then, you know, like, I was a model for, like, five years... And the water was thin, 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 thin. And I was considered not thin enough. Which, like, if we're being real, there is no thin enough. Death is the thin enough. Right. When we can see your bones poke out of your skin, maybe you'll be... Yeah. When you're dead and not talking. (laughs) That's... You've you've done it. Go! Perfect. (laughs) Um, And so... I haven't had 
that many people throughout my life who are considered fat. Totally. Um, and then really looking at my awareness deficit um, in like making you regalia mm -hmm. and you know the times I've like borrowed your clothes and that one time someone was like you're skinny bitch and I was <laughs> like uh, I have a disorder that means I can't eat that much sometimes um yeah and just re I mean I personally like this those moments of realization of awareness deficit I feel sad not shame I feel sad that the conditioning is like it separating me from being able to be engaged in care with my relatives. And that, you know, it's good that you have opportunities and moments to realize that. And it's also completely understandable. Like fat people are shunned and tucked so away. Shunned. And, yeah. um, you know, my closest friends growing up were also fat. Yeah. And I was the smallest one of us, but I certainly was not going to hang out with, like, the thin, pretty girls. Mm. Um, and, at, like, I'm also a person who, because of my disability and chronic illness, I fluctuate weight a lot. Mm -hmm. And when I am thinner, it's because I'm sicker. Right. And people will compliment me, treat me better, you know, like... <laughs> want to introduce me to their other friends, you know, like it's, it is palpable the difference, the way people treat me, give or take a hundred pounds. Um, and I've always fluctuated with my weight for the last, I'd say 15 years. And I've known a lot of the same people for those 15 years and they certainly wow. treat me differently when I'm thin. And you know, getting complimented when I feel like I'm on the brink of death. They're like, oh my god, you look so good. And I'm like, <laughs> There's Thanks. that thing again. You've got, you've got it once you're dead. Yeah. I haven't left my bathroom floor in three days, but I'm glad that I look skinny to you. And it's just wild. That's what, you know, it's part of the, the construct uh, around fatness where skinny is good and healthy and fat is ugly and bad and not many people look any deeper than that unless they learn that they should that is right. not the standard right which is really like insane because being plump being fat was preferable for a very long time like thinness is this recent phenomena of like the basically like the industrialization of agriculture and when food became more available to the lower class poor people and the higher class were like oh no we need to be distinct everyone can be like healthy now because they have access to food right they can eat and so we're gonna actually be thin right um and the association of fatness to illness is um, just like really horribly remarkable to me. And I just want to say that 
that like hurts me to hear that people treat you differently when you're because like I know what I mean even my parents I mean I feel like even you know my mother was a very thin woman Mm -hmm. and my elder sister was like short and chubby kind of but Mm. you know Riding that line of fatness, and mm-hmm. um, my mom was really hard on her about her body image. I remember this this one time my sister, you know, it was the 90s, so my sister wore this um, two-piece gold tube top prom dress to the prom. Sick. And Love it. My mother told her she looked like a sausage. <laughs> oh my god! And that has stuck with me for so long. And so, you know, I was, and my, my father's a very thin person, you know, I'm the outlier being a, being a fat person and not trying to be thin. Yeah. Even my mother as a very thin woman was always like, you know, I got to eat this yogurt or whatever. I'm trying to lose a couple pounds. I got to take a walk, whatever it is. And here I am, just happily fat, give me another slice of pizza. And that was real hard for my mother. And I think that, you know, when someone is not ready to confront their own fat phobia, Mm -hmm. what can you do but be nice to your daughter when she loses 20 pounds? Let's just, like, go into this mother shit. <laughs> like, let's just go. Let's go. Like, to me, the, part of the whole obsession with thinness definitely, like, is in alignment with cis females embodying the white patriarchal ethos. The, like, white patriarchal taste. Um... And the violence that mothers do on their daughters in the arena of body image, I just, I like, I, I like have no words. I just want to like scream into the abyss. I mean, like my mom would call me a fat cow after I ate like three double cheeseburgers. And I'm like, I'm growing. (laughs) I need this because I'm growing and I like it's just I don't know like as a mom I would never even think to say that to Lyra to my daughter Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that's because of the trauma I have um but like in one aspect I understand that part of the intention of my mother at least was to like make sure that I was accepted right right but like what cost, right? Well, yeah, how many things have our mothers suppressed or demonized or whatever because they wanted us to be accepted yeah. when really, like, we just needed them to accept us. Right, and yeah. And we wouldn't have really needed the whole world's right. acceptance. But it's the violence that was done to them, right? It's right. the violence of society and, you know, to keep, capitalism and the dominant culture moving the way that it does that scarcity mentality feeds Mm. on self-loathing right when we hate ourselves 
we need products to fix it or cover it up or turn it into something it's not. And, you know, how much less money would you spend if you just, you <laughs> Yo. know, accepted yourself? Hashtag we could buy land back. Land back. Like, buy back the planet. Buy back the planet. All that money we'd save. <laughs> All that money we'd save. <laughs> For real. And I think that, like, so... I mean, the, like, fatness and thinness are societally constructed parameters on the body that, in my understanding, stem from, like, a class manipulation of people. Uh, like, the upper class the ones that want to that typically control the masses it, these are like parameters that they're putting also in place. speaking to here like in the united states where we live cuz this is exactly. a really nuanced thing in other yes. cultures fatness is right. not as demonized as it is here yes. or more demonized depend on right where thank we you are for localizing us totally yeah and in australia like the fat shame, the the allergicness yeah. of fatness is so palpable. You run into it, like you like it's physical. You run into it. It's so intense. It's so intense in Australian culture. Yeah, like when my daughter and I went back a couple years ago, I was still hearing women complaining about being fat, and they're like a size four. Totally. And I'm like, yo, I'm a size eight. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you understand what is happening in your mind right now. Like, and in conjunction with like anti-fatness, anti-body hair is also prevalent. Mm-hmm. Like, blonde is still preferred. Um, that the white male imagination, the white male erotic desire, is still. The driving force of how we shape our bodies, it seemed to me, in Australian culture. I think in the United States it definitely is shifting more rapidly. Well, there's a lot of fat, black, trans, disabled people who are doing a lot of work around fat liberation. Yeah. Um... And have been, you know, and, like, the rest of us are just coming to the table. Right. Right. Throughout my two semesters, I just, like, say this thing so often. How many bodies of color, how many disabled people is it going to take? Which is daunting. I get, I, I like, hit this point where I just feel kind of hopeless. Um, but then, like, I see my daughter who, she's not really indicating any kind of uh, anti-fatness in her psyche. And I'm like, oh. This is what we hope, that we can teach the kids to do better, but also, like, no matter how well we do in our homes, they still live in a society that hates fat people. Right. And, you know, I am a very fat-positive parent, and, um... You know, my kids have definitely still already at five, seven, and nine picked up the Mm -hmm. societal fat phobia uh, that exists when we are outspokenly fat positive in this house. You know, it's going to come. 
and it's more, I think, about being able to confront those those thoughts and tendencies as they come, because none of us are impervious to right. the fat phobia. Yeah. I mean, even, like, as I've struggled with my disability and, and like, you know, there's moments where you're like, I remember, I guess it was last summer, you were like, Lily, this is the thinnest I've ever seen you. Mm. And I hadn't, I hadn't eaten, like, an actual meal in a few weeks. Like, I, at that point, I was not able to eat food. My body just wasn't able to process anything. Um, and that was really scary for me. Like, yeah. I felt afraid. Um, and yet, like, those fat phobic thoughts were still prevalent. Not necessarily, like, directed towards myself, but, like, out in public. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm having these thoughts. And it's, it like, they don't feel like my own. Right? And it's this intense conditioning. But, like, you have to take... It doesn't matter if they're not your thoughts. You have to take accountability for the fact that they're in your head. And they're going to affect your behavior. Well, and you know. You know that people are going to treat you a certain way. If you look thin and pretty... Right. You're going to get treated a certain way. And it's scary to think, like, you know, I... I'm the thinnest I've ever been to the point where I'm afraid. But if I go say that to a doctor, they're <laughs> going to be like, what are you complaining about? You right. Know? Which that shit terrifies me. Totally. Like, I used to be able to put away six elbow cheeseburgers, no problem. And now, like, I, it, I struggle so hard with being able to eat food and... Um, the medical industry that's supposed to support my life has no interest in my actual life. And sort of that segues real nicely into the way that uh, disability is directly, you know, affected, impacted by food accessibility. Um, yeah. And how, you know, for whatever reason however you're able to feed yourself is going to impact what you look like to the outside world. And just there are all these layers to, you know, every choice that you make. And for some people, there are many less choices. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. When we were in Australia, I had um, people I was around, they would talk about how Americans are so fat and they're so disgusting and they just like eat like shit. And I was like, yo, we just pulled up into the McDonald's here and it's like actual food where the McDonald's in the United States is not made up of like mostly only food. There's like so many other chemicals and components in, in like the fast food in the United States that you can't like, are you kidding me? And like, what are you going to do when people are so worked to the bone that there's no time to cook themselves a meal? Yeah. Or, like, I can't remember the last time that I had enough energy to cook a meal. So, I certainly eat out, take out more than I should, or more than, I don't want to say should, but more than one might consider healthy. But it's all relative. 
you know? Yeah. And, like, the food, like, the fast food, I don't know. I think, evolutionarily speaking, fast food is ingenious. The problem is, is what the fast food is made with, right? That, like, I mean, like, I literally can't eat the fast food because my body can't process it. And so, like, if I, yo, like, I miss McDonald's french fries. But, like, when we went to Australia, I definitely, like, had some. And I was like, damn, 10 years I've, like, not had this. But I, I can't process. I have to eat food that's so simple. Um, and, like, fast food doesn't, I mean, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really experience fast food to cater to, like, my disability which I have to like not eat gluten not eat dairy not eat processed sugar and it not be like 20 fucking dollars a meal (laughs) and yeah this this like uh first of all like blaming people on being fat because of what they eat is I'm sus about that it's just like this simplification of like I'll just say, yeah, there's just, there's no way to know. There are all shapes and sizes of people eating all sorts of different kinds of food and affects everybody in different ways. And there are all sorts of different reasons that people have to eat what they eat. Right. Until, like, we've got some community-supplied, reliable food programs. I just don't think, like, there's any place to be talking about anybody's food intake or like what they eat and the people who like eat a salad because it will make you fat first of all i fucking hate salad and that's my food's food second of all like my body hates hates salads. <laughs> like i my body's like hell no with that wabouge thing okay no thank you like, just, just, like, the the whole mentality around food and health is so, so simplified, and it's, it's, it's a binary. Again, yet again, there's, like, this other binary that is creating borders across bodies and into people's lives, um, and, I mean, I know I definitely, I, I have definitely being guilty of doing this to you where I remember like years ago um I was like try this thing for your intestinal thing try that thing for your intestinal thing what about this and that was so annoying I mean we all get used to it (laughs) (laughs) which is like like you shouldn't have to used to that you know like that's totally yeah but like you know you can tell you can tell as a disabled person, when somebody is, like, being genuine or when somebody is, like, mansplaining. Totally, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, we we have the same diagnosis. We both have chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Which we did not get from... The same Afghanistan or any war... No. Uh, ...that we were shipped to. Like, just note that... PTSD is not a war only disability. Correct. Um, and PTSD and chronic PTSD are different. They function differently in the body. Um, 
but we both have this diagnosis and it manifests similarly in some ways for us and very differently in many other ways. I think recently you, you, <laughs> you were like, Lily, you just like raw dog your mental illness. Yeah, <laughs> you do. You do. You just come at it with, you know, as you are. Unmedicated, un... I don't know. Violently? (laughs) I'm like, oh, you're gonna do me like that? Cool, like, I'm gonna show up. But, um, yeah, I think, like, I think the biggest way that my, this, like, mental disability, I, I... I think I was, like, referring to it as a disorder at one point, or I'm not sure. I get confused. Disorder and disability. But the way it physiologically manifests for me the most is um, in my intestines. And, like, I'm sure doctors would be like, oh, you have IBS. I'm like, I have CPTSD. Well, you do have CPTSD, but that doesn't mean you don't have IBS, right. you know? Like, yes, they all of these other things that you might get diagnosed with are under that CPTSD umbrella. They may all be, you know, that's the root, but the other diagnoses and the other symptoms and comorbidities having those names for things can be helpful to like yeah figure out how to work with them right yeah like the new manifestation of disability is like a hyper reaction that my skin has so if i scratch myself my skin's like oh my god we have to attack there's an invader i'm like literally i'm itchy you don't (laughs) have to like it's chill skin and i get these like welts and it looks like i have been mauled by something um and it's like really I think this there's this thing you say to me often you're like Lily you have a disability and so often it's hard for me to actually accept that for sure um you know I I grew up with a very certain picture of what disabled was in my head. Totally. You know, like the placard on the, on a accessible bathroom. You just picture someone in a wheelchair and that's what disabled meant to me as a child. I didn't have any more teaching around it than that. And then when I got a little bit older, um, my mother was disabled. She had epilepsy. Um, and she also had chronic major depression and she was very she had so much stigma around her own disability Mm. and around calling herself disabled yeah that it couldn't even be a conversation Mm -hmm. that I had a disability she couldn't even fathom that we would call it that yeah even though she witnessed the way I was affected in my everyday life, socially, physically, mentally, emotionally. That word is so packed in our society. Yeah. And it, it means different things to different people until you get some context. Right. I want to say 
I don't know, my disability shows up in all sorts of ways. A lot of them social and interpersonal. Um, you know, inability to make eye contact, like constant hypervigilance when you're in social situations. Um, I have to leave places without warning sometimes. You know, I always drive everywhere in my own car because you never know when you're going to have to get up and go when it's going to be an emergency. I scream when there are loud noises sometimes. Physically, I don't know. It depends on the day, right? Chronic back pain. Mm-hmm. Chronic digestional issues. Insomnia. Um, sometimes dissociation flashbacks I feel like there's not a day in my life that goes by that I'm not in some way extra impacted by my disability let alone the way that it has just shaped my life mm. and so right like when you're a disabled person even though the world is not ready for you you have to shape your own little world so that you can exist in it whether that has to do with physical accessibility or time accessibility, setting your own pace, creating your own schedule or setup or whatever it is. Um, you know, I have been lucky and privileged to create a life that really accommodates my disability in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I get to stay at home now, whereas it used to be a constant struggle of, am I going to be able to leave my bathroom for long enough to take my kids to school and make it back to the bathroom again? And now that we're in a pandemic, I don't have that struggle anymore, which is like a secret gift, right? Mm. This, this beautiful gift of the pandemic where people don't expect as much from you. Right. I don't have to show up places that I don't have the capability to show up. I don't have to... Pretend I have the spoons for obligations. Hopefully we can maintain some of that. <laughs> <laughs> for real. Yo, the, like, the bathroom thing is so hard for me. Like, part of my really rigid scheduling mm -hmm. is because of my disability, right? Oh, for sure. Like, okay, I need to make sure, like, that... I'm keeping to a certain time schedule because I know that like my body has this rhythm and I need to make sure that there's like a bathroom accessible and this is one thing about living in the city and being in the pandemic that just fucking sucked like the public bathroom access was absolutely zero and yeah the the like when we were building the lodge. When yeah, when we were building the Red Dress Lodge on um, the Boston Common and there was no I did not I had to pee from six thirty in the morning until five in the afternoon. And we were looking for a bathroom. We could not find an open bathroom. This was closer to the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And we ran into a houseless man on a bicycle yeah. and asked him, you know, where we were going to be able to 
yeah. find a bathroom. And the place that he suggested to us, I want to say, was, like, at least a mile away. Yeah. So imagine yeah. living in that space. Right. And not having any access. Right. Where, I mean, I can tell you as a person who needs bathroom access, even before the pandemic, it wasn't exactly easy. Right. You know, in an emergency to right. always find a bathroom. Right. I can't imagine... I can't imagine having to hunt down a bathroom right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, and these are just, like, lived experiences that, like, make it blaringly obvious that disability is bolstered by the society that we live in. Like, if we lived in a society that had awareness and forethought around... First of all, I have this suspicion that, like, that type of society, its ontology would be of care, right? So we probably wouldn't be as traumatized <laughs> to begin with. Um, and there's certain types of disability that I think, are, I mean, my disability is because of the traumatization that happened to me throughout my childhood and life. Um, but then there are other disabilities that are just um, naturally occurring. Right. I don't know that calling them disabilities is accurate. They're called disabilities because of the society we live right. in. Right. In this culture, they are disabilities yes. because we make them that. Right. And if we lived in a culture and a society that its ontology was care, they would not be called disabled people and they like us but in different ways wouldn't have to have this very structured way of moving through the world that comes with so much limitation right like I think you know like a lot I think people often think of me as like a just a really hardcore scheduler but they have no context that like I have like a brain disorder right and it manifests physiologically sometimes i have convulsions and go catatonic for a while i gotta make sure like i'm not like when i feel like those things are gonna happen i gotta make sure i'm not like in the street totally you know what if i'm with my kid and it happens like what's gonna happen to my kid i mean she'll probably like be like yo siri (laughs) (laughs) my my mom is like gone catatonic can you send help (laughs) Um, but I don't want the police. Like, should be like, let's have a party. Mom is out. <laughs> <laughs> let's like cover mom yeah. in fabric and flowers, and we can know. watch a movie in we quiet. Could, yeah, we, <laughs> <laughs> my poor kid. Um, but yeah, this like uh, the ways in which people are offended mm-hmm. by what they're perceiving as like me or you being aggressive with your time boundaries, aggressive with your scheduling boundaries. Like, bro, you don't want me to like shit all over you. Right. <laughs> like exactly. you don't want this. Like you don't want me to like lock up and go catatonic and you, I'm, I'm like, I'm small, but I'm heavy. Like you can't, you don't want this heat bro like this is no and I just I don't know I'm I'm thinking back to like the mom point of of what like I I wonder I'm fantasizing right now about 
if enough parents continuously were accepting and supported an environment for their children to be who they are and not feel like they have to embody this disabled archetype with enough, I'm going to say critical mass, which may be illogical, I don't know. I've gotten some feedback around the term critical mass and it being problematic, but I'm going to go there for a second. If there's enough critical mass, like maybe that would shift the society. Uh, <laughs> I'm fantasizing. Yeah, that might really be wishful thinking. This is sci-fi. <laughs> I mean, we would hope, right? But. But then there's capitalism. And just we live in a society that depends on othering. Yeah. Right. Regardless of, like, what it is, there's always going to be an othering. Right. And it's always going to be, like, or or not always, but we exist in a world where the othering happens on those spectrums of disability and colorism. Yeah. And, you know, class privilege and socioeconomic privilege and well, you got to tilt the whole thing on his axis. Yeah. If you're going to change any of it. Yeah. I don't think it's... One at a time. Right. I've talked to a handful of people about the pandemic and they are really disappointed in people, the government, not taking this opportunity to change like societal structure. Instead, there it feels like there was a clamping down of the pre-existing systems. And, you know, there were these accessibility options that opened up, right? Right! So <laughs> tons of disabled people finally were getting these accommodations that they needed from companies and organizations and universities uh, that are now just being taken away again. And it's like, so we've shown that right. we have the ability yeah. to do these things, but, you know, disabled people alone... Right. That's not enough of a necessity. Right. Only when it's everybody right. are we going to employ those tools. And it's just, you know, it's part of the way that we we cast disabled people out. Yeah. And fat people. And fat people. And the way we are continuing to do that. We are actively, as a society, choosing to step backwards with accommodations that have been made. Right. Which is just, like, a whole nother level of wild, right? <laughs> it's so wild! Like, here's this thing we've done. We've put the whole world on Zoom, easy peasy. But now that everything's starting to spin again, people who have needed those accommodations all along are losing them. Right. These are those moments where I feel hopeless again. Oh, I feel so hopeful. Just the fact that we're doing this, right? Just the fact that, you know, how many people in your classes who are going to hear this are disabled or fat? You know, how many fat people do you have in your class? And so here's, I don't know, I have no concept of how many people are in your classes actually, but I'm going to throw out the number 15, just like a <laughs> wild number, and say like, I don't know, here are 10 or 15 people who are maybe going to hear. Yeah something about fatness that's gonna make them rethink their thin privilege. We're gonna hear something about disability yeah. that 
may, will help them make a consideration for someone else along the line where they would never have had to before. I think that's the key is like changing the thinking uh, patterning to include people right. like not just thinking about yourself which like I mean yeah I think I mean definitely when we were in Australia people were like Americans are so selfish and that may be true in some aspect and from my experience of living in this society in the United States it's this it's it's the ontology of scarcity it's the it's the way we are conditioned as a people that there's never enough right and that especially for us people of color like we could die at any moment any moment from violence from systemic violence like the, like so the self-centered selfish behavior i think is in part because we're trying to survive um, and starting to think about, I mean, I think like in, in a lot of cases, we already do think about each other. Um, and really, as, as, as I'm like mentally vomiting right now, I'm, I'm like, oh, there's actually like a specific group of people who need to stop thinking about themselves. But I mean, like, you know, yes, we do think about each other, but I think largely we think about the each other that's right in front of us. You totally. Know, like, you were talking about how you didn't make these considerations about fatness until you knew me. Yeah. And disability and fatness are those things where we as a society were not taught to look past yeah. our immediate circle yeah. of people who probably look like us and walk right. like us and talk like us and were educated like us and eat like us and whatever. Uh-huh. And in order to consider people, you have to actually see that they exist. Yes. How do I make considerations about a disability that I don't know anything about or that I've never seen or heard of, you know? Literally. Like how, like how I started this podcast, talking to people who don't exist yet. Right. <laughs> like... Uh, exactly exactly how do you think about people who are not in your cosmology who are not in your mind um that feels a little helpful like the the expansion that does to you um because that individualism you know, that's so part of the the capitalist right thing. I never have enough. Yeah. Because when when you get into a community, we usually have enough mm-hmm. for each other. We mm-hmm. have enough. Mm-hmm. But when it's I, that's hard and and capitalism and dominant culture exist on that. Right. That I'll never have enough scarcity mentality. Yeah. And when we start thinking broader mm-hmm. yeah confronts just the whole system as you're talking I'm thinking about globalism and the way it functions its function is mainly through capitalism in my opinion um, and I wonder if like an evolution 
of the globalism structure we have now is actually predicated on that awareness of those who exist but who aren't in your bubble like that type of expansion of the self and of others um and we can totally never say the word globalism again <laughs> and i think most people can't even don't even fathom that right you know they're those like, are yeah. like the other others right you know they're the people in my immediate circle and then there's people in New Hampshire. Just right. kidding. Well, but, like, then there's the people who live away that yeah. I don't live, but they live down the road. Right. Let alone people who live across the world. Like, we've just, we create these levels of othering. Yeah. Where people are farther and farther and farther away from us in realities, and then they're dehumanized. Right. You know, you don't even live in the same world that I do. Yeah. And then you're not even a person. That's, like, not a far leap. <laughs> not a far leap thanks racialization yeah 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 so basically capitalism hates us all including the fat and disabled <laughs> yeah yeah moral of the convo yeah capitalism yeah needs needs to go capitalism is like the enemy Yes. And I mean, you know, we've had elders talk about when the people were fat, that was a time of great joy. Totally. Totally. And that, you know, it is just like a wildly short amount of history where thinness has been fetishized in this way. Yeah. And, you know, the abundance of history shows us that fatness has been a sign of beauty and being cared for, and having what you need. Having health. Having health, you know, yeah. being able to reproduce. Yeah. And it was something that was very sought after. Yeah. Um, and it still is, if you hang with the right people. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, as always, I feel humbled when we have conversations like this oh it's heavy yeah and good it's good yeah it's so good to you know because like we have a lot of common experience mm -hmm. but we also lead pretty different lives definitely um yeah and you know we look real different we don't have the same body style yeah but when it comes to disability, the experience of othering, I yeah. think, is universal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, what's important... Well, for, for me, um, I usually see, like, conversations around fatness not between fat and thin people totally i think for a very intelligent reason because fat people don't need to be educating thin people um and having like this conversation with you feels good because it's like a we're sharing we're right. mutually sharing and it's it's um in that sharing there is learning and 
there's more space for calling in instead of calling out. And it's an also, like, you know, a testament to you actually wanting to show up to the conversation of fatness. Generally, when I have a conversation about fatness with a thin person, they feel attacked or they don't know how to talk about it. And so the conversation about fatness actually turns into a conversation about body image. And so thin people often can't have that conversation around, like, fatness without thinking about how they feel bad about their own body, too. And so, like, that feels like oppression. And so those conversations about fatness so often get derailed when you have them with thin people. So, like, to be able to actually sit here and have a conversation about fatness is, like, refreshing. Yeah. (laughs) That's... Whoa. That is my most common experience talking about fatness with people who are not fat. Yeah. Is that they can't understand that I'm not talking about how I feel about myself. Mm. I love Oh, wait, 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 wait. Please say that one more (laughs) time. (laughs) I mean, it's not. I I love being fat. It might have taken me a long time to get here, but I love being fat. The world doesn't love me being fat. And yeah. so, when you when you don't have the world hating for you for your size in that way, but maybe you had, like, Bobby in the third grade tell you you were a skinny mini. Yeah. You know, that feels like, oh, I'm also being hurt by my size. And there's not a lot of perspective around uh, systemic violence right. versus, like, hurt feelings. Right. Yeah, and an inability to just hold space for somebody while they, like, share. Mm -hmm. Listen, just listen. Just listen and hold space. And I think that, like, this... I've noticed that there's this, like, common experience between different people. Usually it's, like, white people and non-white people. Um, where you try to find commonality between experiences, but like we don't have to have the same fucking experience. We don't need to. I don't need to in order to have compassion and empathy for you right. and like understand, get to a place of understanding. We don't have that is some binary ass shit, and it's completely inefficient. And I think it's inefficient. You don't have to have the same experience. In order to have compassion and understand. And there are certainly, like, some people who that's how they express empathy, right? By by expressing common experience. But there are some people who I think just... They can't engage in that conversation. So it has yeah. to be redirected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. But, like, the fact that we're having this conversation means that there's a step in the right direction, right? Yeah. You took a class about this, you know? however many years ago yeah nobody was trying to have a class about like fat liberation or whatever right you know yeah that i i was finding also like so honest super super honest i didn't even think that i should be learning about that like that's part of it too is like being like oh just because i don't have this lived experience doesn't mean i need to like educate myself on it right and i think like my like a downside in my life is that 
um, it took having fat people in my life for me to be like, fuck, I need to like do my work. Like, I wish I had done that before. Like, yeah. I think that's common though. Lots of people don't start doing any of that sort of like social growth until it's right in the face. Absolutely. It's, I think it's just important to be real about where you're coming from constantly. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And just like, not side note, but kind of side note, when in this class I, we were reading about when the preference from fatness to thinness to, I lost my mind. Just like the insidiousness of capitalism, the insidiousness of like colonial control and manipulation um, is unbelievable. And then like the, the, the switch from thinness, from fatness to thinness combined with racialization and like the, the exotification of the black woman's body and then labeling the black woman's body fat and, and then other women of color, their fatness exotified. I, I like, I mean, it's one thing to like intuitively know that there's something wrong. It's another thing to, to learn why it's wrong. And then it's another thing to learn the language of these violators. The systems that they've put in place to say like these things are unacceptable. Yeah. And the false fucking science, like literally I am like, okay, if once I graduate from this graduate program, maybe I'll just like make up a science. <laughs> Liliology. Yeah. Fuck it. I'm, I'm gonna make up a science. Okay. If these white men think they can do it, I obviously can too. Hey, I'm with it. What uh, are we gonna prove? Yeah. This is actually, a, I'm, oh, I'm so. so... <laughs> <Yeah>. Next episode. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah, this is great. Great. Is there anything for anyone listening that you want to, like, say or, yeah, that you want to say? Um, I just want to say that, like, uh, we have real similar disabilities, and so the things that we've been talking about in this episode are very pointed to a very similar lived experience of one very specific disability and there are disabled people all over the world with all different kinds of disabilities and access needs so just don't think just from like listening to this one podcast yeah that you're like some sort of a disabled you know like you know what's up yeah if you like figure out what the disabled people in your life need for accessibility like do the work in your life we didn't do any work for you by having this conversation. We did it for ourselves. Mm. And you now need to go do it in your own life. Yeah. Facts. Yeah. Part of the, uh, Liliology. And fucking give a fat person some money today. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And disabled people. Yeah. Like, find a fat, black, trans, disabled person and give them your money. That is your assignment (laughs) post-podcast. Yeah. 
homework. I think that I'd I'd like to also share that I'm learning and you're learning and we're sharing this learning and I want to encourage people to not um, criticize with like uh, with the intention of calling out like it's important that it's important for me to create spaces of learning and it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be wrong you know I mean in our lineages stories creation stories star people made all kinds of mistakes None of those coyote perfect. made so many mistakes bear made so many mistakes Koitek you know, cougar, mountain lion, mates, like, we, we make mistakes. Um, We're here to learn. Let's just not make a mistake with nuclear bombs. <laughs> let's not make those mistakes. But yeah, like, this is a space for sharing in our learning. Um, and I'm so grateful that you have conversed with me in the first episode of Intellectual Intercourse with Smart Moms. Smart Moms. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. People, family, kin, non-human relatives. <laughs>